What an honor it is to connect with somebody who really uh, has been a groove guardian in so many different ways, uh, not necessarily in the jazz realm, but professionally, but uh, he clearly had uh, the chops and was infatuated by black music, which is really more about uh, not necessarily the notes on the paper, but where the notes feel right within the context of the song. And uh, as a result, my guest was uh, part of and collaborated on many a hit record and also had a chance to tour with many, many unheralded shaman blues players overseas. He continues to do it today down in Tampa, St. Pete. Jeff Stick Davis, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Jake, thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure to be here today. It's such an honor to have you, man. You know, I've been on you. I've been after you for a while, and I'm delighted that uh, that you are uh, still here and still ripping it up on the bandstand. I did. I really wanted you to talk about <clears throat> any experiences that you had seeing. You know, Elvis had uh, a string bass player uh, uh, early on, uh, and I just. Oh, yeah. Bill Black. That's right, Bill Black, and and I'm and I, you know, and I know Mingus. I, I, you know, I'm just wondering if you had a chance to see some of these incredible uh, early sort of purveyors of the string bass, especially in the in the in the jazz context. Uh, not as much in that I played the upright bass in school, but uh, on February 9th, nineteen sixty four, all that changed when I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Oh yeah, uh, I saw uh, you know here's a guy who plays what I play, only it's electric, and look at that hair and screaming girls, you know. <laughs> and I already played upright bass, and I'd been taking guitar lessons. My mom had got me a little electric guitar, so I kind of knew how it worked and. So right after then, man, upright bass seemed old and stodgy to me, you know, because it was I was just fifteen or something. So to answer that, I didn't really get to see a lot of jazz greats because I didn't pursue that. I didn't understand or have an appreciation for these real musicians. Not that the Beatles weren't, uh, I, you know. I, what can I say? No, I, I think it's valid. I think what you're talking about is you were a self-taught musician. I mean, you played the upright bass in school but the the Beatles were essentially a skiffle band I mean they they picked up their instruments and they became incredibly gifted you know but they weren't you know this wasn't symphonic music and things like that so you were more into the sort of the idea of original tunes but also just keeping it very greasy too yeah and at the same time you know we were all pretty young when we started that I didn't understand the the actual part of uh, the bass being part of the group till many years later. I just thought if you knew a whole bunch of songs and you could emulate other players and all that, that, that you could be successful doing that. So it, and then I started being around uh, musicians that in my travels, I guess over the years, I end up in the, East Tennessee and being around musicians that were writing songs and affiliated with country music, like the Grand Ole Opry and that. And uh, all before that, uh, I had been living up in the north and playing rhythm and blues and dance music and like that. So I ended up down in, uh, in Tennessee 
uh, around songwriters and these particular styles and most important studios and studio musicians, which I wasn't aware of uh, that there were another kind of musician, not guys <laughs> who played in clubs, right, but the guys right. that actually made the record. Right, right, right. So who who are some? Of, can you talk about some of these songwriters? I'm, I mean, you weren't toiling around at Sun Records or anything like that. Well, yeah. What, to talk, please talk about some of these early. This is really where the rubber meets the road. Uh, yeah, and we didn't even. I mean, what happened was uh, there was this guitar player, Bird Burton, the guy. That oh my God! Let, dude, just lo- yeah, fifteen years ago, anniversary of his passing last week. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. And as much as anything, he was my mentor and probably all of us because he taught us um, like he already was working at Sam Phillips. He was a studio manager, Sam Phillips recording. Sure. He was a studio manager there. And so he was from Knoxville and he'd come over once in a while. And he saw us guys. We were called Fatback. It was Russell Smith, which McDade, myself, Billy Earhart, uh, and we'd already been to Canada, me and Butch, and played with Jesse Winchester for a year. So, we, you know, we felt like we, you know, seasoned recording guys. You know, <laughs> yeah. Record, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but, but, you know, pretty heady stuff at those days. You know, Jesse, his manager was Albert Grossman, you know. and Albert Wow, I don't think I knew age. that. Yeah. Oh, I couldn't believe it. I, we had just started. Uh, got up there on Sunday, started the next day, played 21 nights in a row in this club across the street from the forum. So on one of these nights, I just met Jesse, and that was the first songwriter kind of guy I was around, other than Russell Smith. Actually, Russell Smith was the first one. Uh, and I, I thought, oh, yeah, somebody has to write these songs, don't they? <laughs> and so there was a whole thing, my discovery of that, because I, I didn't know, you know, I'm just some bits from Southern Indiana. I didn't know nothing. I wasn't a musician. I was a guy in a band. It was different. Bill Wyman pointed that out when somebody called him a musician. I said, I'm not a musician. I play in a band. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm in the yeah. band business, man. Yeah, so I I was that first. I kind of consider myself a musician now, but just I'm just now starting to get it figured out. It's too bad I'm too old to do anything about it. <laughs> well, I mean, can you talk about? I mean, so yeah, I'm sorry, yeah. I'm getting excited. no, 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 no. This is the whole point of it. I mean, I'm taking you. Uh, this is what it's all about. I, I love where you're going with this. I mean, in oh, okay. gen in general, though, like <clears throat> when you talked, when you could you just talk about. Uh, you know, so Jesse came down there and then brought you back to Canada? I mean, is that... Ha- oh, Jesse would have come down to get us. He'd been languishing in federal prison. He was a draft dodger. Oh, So wow. he couldn't come back here. He's from a famous Memphis family. There was even a, there's even a road, a big road named after his family, Winchester. But yeah, he, he's from a Memphis family. He was he's passed away a few years ago? A finer person you'll never meet. Uh, but he was the first recording artist, me and Butch... We got the call. Somehow, some other people in in Knoxville, I didn't know him, but others there did. And he called down there and needed a couple of players. And so Butch McDade, our drummer, went up there, and they called me and said, stick, get up here quick. And so I came up there, and we spent a year living up there, toured back and forth across the country. Of course, he couldn't come into the States at that time. That all changed later on. Uh, but to... Uh, like I said, while we were still just the first week or so, Albert Grossman and the president of Warner's flew up there on the Warner's jet just to say hi to Jesse. 
and they took us out for hot dogs. I'll never forget <laughs> it. But, you know, here's Albert Grossman, you know, this guy at the time, man, he was Bob Dylan's manager and Janis Joplin and, you know, the people that were really, at, at, in my day, you know, some of the biggest names. So even just to get to sit and talk with this man and then they recorded his, you know, for his label, Bearsville, which Jesse was on, Butch and I were on his third record, Learn to Love It. Um, so that was, we were Jesse Winchester and the Rhythm Aces. That's kind of how that started, actually, the name Rhythm Aces. And then... We did a couple of Russell Smith tunes on Jesse's record. He asked if we had any songs to contribute. And so all we had was Russell Smith songs. So we played those. In fact, one of them was Third Rate Romance. And we recorded those on Jesse's record. And because of that, it kind of got things going for the amazing Rhythm Aces. Um, as far as publishing and stuff, um, we all got writing deals because of that. I say me and Butch and uh, Russell Smith and Billy Earhart, we all got writing deals with Mr. Grossman's publishing company wow. as a result of being, you know, part of that. And then we knew Bird Burton, and he's the one that brought us to Memphis, to Sam Phillips. He, he heard us play these original tunes of Russell Smith's at a little studio in Knoxville, and only thing he could offer was he said, "Hey, imagine the studio over there. There's not much going on." They they said for Hamburg to get a project and bring them in the studio and produce them. You know, see about getting a deal. In other words, do something. You know, and so he they say, "You guys, yeah, man, you guys got these songs." And so we made three trips across the state, which is a long way, four hundred miles each way. It's the longest state, surrounded by the most states. Wow. Tennessee. Seven states, I think, touched Tennessee. <laughs> Geography fact. Uh, but we kept going over there. Man, it cost... Finally, we all just moved over there. Well, what <laughs> we did was we had our girlfriends quit our, their jobs in Knoxville and come over to Memphis and get jobs so we could continue to live and play music. You know? uh, so that's we went over there because the studio was there and we kept like going in and recording and hanging around Sam Phillips and the history was just dripping with history. And we had keys to plays. We could like, well, oh, let's listen to some old Jerry Lee Lewis masters. <laughs> so they're just in the library, you know, cause it was like art deco-ish. 1959 is when it was built. So wow. it had kind of pastels in there. Sam Phillips was still alive. He'd come down there, but really his son, Knox Phillips was the guy that got us our deal. He was the business guy. And uh, so he was shopping around to get us a record deal, you know, and, you know, he got an offer one, he turned it down, and why do you, well, of course, he's the one who knew what he was doing, not us. But anyway, he got us a nice little deal with ABC for on third grade romance, and that came out, and it was kind of a surprise hit. You that, know? that uh, I'm sorry, but that, I mean, it's so funny, because obviously there's always the the pop hits on the radio, but that whole album is incredible. <laughs> well, thank you. I got to tell you the reason looking back anyway, is because we didn't know how to make records. Right. The right. Of the songs, the music, the players, we were a bar band and we kind of played like that later. When we start learning how to make records, I think that was our downfall because they, they we didn't ever make any as good as that anymore. You know, I want I want I want to stop right. Th let's just talk about this because uh, 
I, I was reading something where uh, I think Jerry Wexler was like, nobody knew, quote unquote, how to make a record until 1976, which is the, uh, a year or so after you made Stack Deck. And I just probably, yeah. I, I, I want you to talk about the the lack of a formula trip in the studio in on that album, and then ultimately what changed as it relates to the efficiency model or how it got more uh, codified. Like to me, like the, the the like you said, it never was the same after that. So what was ultimately what was there before? What are some of the aesthetics that were there before? And what changed after? Well, one of the things which fre- which frequently happens with artists, uh, you got like your whole life to put your first record together. You know, those right. songs have been a few years and coming together and playing them live and stuff. And there was enough for our second record, which had a hit or two on there and our Grammy winning record. But after that, then... Oh, we got another record to do. Okay, oh, everybody better sell there, write some songs. Okay, write some songs. You know, we're all on the road. Just write songs about being on the road, you know. And the, um, because we had, we were now, then making a living, you know, we've been together for a few years and everything. So as, as, you know, at this time we had a record deal and we probably owed them three records or something. And so we had to do one a year. And you have to come up with material. You have to come up with 12 sides a year. That's That was kind of the record deal back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, I, you know what I'm talking about? Like, you got the gun to your head. The right. songs aren't going to be as like love song like as they are if you're sitting there with your girlfriend. And like, let's see, a boon, a spoon, beneath the moon. Hey, what do you think, Benny? <laughs> you know, something. Uh, but, you know, said, okay, the label's breathing down your neck. Hey, man, we gave each one of you 15 grand. You're all living in new houses. How about some songs? <laughs> they don't really say that, but that's what they mean, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're kind of under the gun and then also everybody, uh, success, even a little bit of it. And cause we weren't, we were more like, uh, successful to our peers, um, more than just like a household name or anything, you know, more like, like people we toured with Eagles and like that. We toured with the Eagles. They're, they're, tour was sold out this was back in long run days but they had us open for them for about six months just because they liked us they didn't even need an opening act they're all their they're all their seats were sold out before they left the house you know uh but within the within the context of like the ability to create i mean obviously you'd been road testing some of these songs on stack deck for Mm -hmm. for a minute but can you talk about like how much creative control you guys had uh, in the studio in, when people didn't know how to make records, like specifically like, and, and how, because ultimately, I mean, I remember interviewing like the drummer, Willie Hall. I know Billy. Oh, kn- Willie Hall okay. played with him a lot, man. My I man. I mean, it's just, the, and he was talking about this thing with Isaac Hayes where uh, he dropped, like, the BGs at a p- after party were coming up to him and and ref- and asking him about this one particular tune, how he got this noise, how he got how he made this noise. They said we got this state of the art soundboard, we got all this stuff, and we still don't know how you did all that. How did you get that? And it was because like a mic dropped on the ground, and it was like, and, and Isaac was like, just leave it in, all right. But it made the song, and like 
Stacks. That was at Stacks, you know. And right. if you ever went to Stacks, it wasn't like some state-of-the-art <laughs> NASA rocket science place. Yeah, there was wires and stuff all the place, you know. But it felt real good and greasy, man, you know. I'm just saying, so, was there some kind of innocence where something came together with you? It doesn't even have to be on the first down. It was all innocent. That was that's the word. Yeah, it was it was born of innocence. Same with recording. Yeah, first now the Beatles made Stars and Pepper on four tracks. Right. Uh, I don't know if anybody can do that today. Every every time we go in to make a record, the state of the art would change. Like Sam Phillips was kind of a funky studio. They didn't hadn't upgraded too much because everything sounded pretty good. It, like it, it, it really sounded good, yeah. And uh, uh, but you know, after we did about four there, then I don't know. Us band guys, we thought we knew everything because we made. Now we were up to four records, you know, <laughs> or something. So we knew everything. So uh, let's go to this state of the art studio and do all of that. And that was the worst sound of record we ever did. It didn't have anything to do with the record. It had to do with the songs and I don't know. Uh, yeah, there was a there was a slick. All of a sudden, I just remember talking to cats who, you know, they they did they they're primarily uh, live mu uh, musicians on the bandstand, but they they definitely spent some time in the studios. And then I just remember talking to this one drummer, and he was talking about. The producer came up to him and said, don't play yourself. Just play straight beats. Just play what the last hit gro record groove was. I don't want to hear who you really are. And it was like that uniformity and sterility, just you can feel that in the music. Uh, well, that's how you talk to studio guys, you know. They'll say, give me this, give me that, give me the other. If you're a studio guy, you know how to judge. You're a chameleon. Right. You're supposed to be that, you know. But James Taylor ain't no studio guy, so everybody's going to want James Taylor to sound like James Taylor. And um, I, I assume that's a long... Now, that that sounds sound like that was a session guy and a producer telling him, you know... What he had? No, he. I mean, this was this was Mike Clark, Mike Clark, who played with. You know, I mean, he didn't he didn't dwell in the studios. He wasn't, uh, you know, Russ Kunkel or Lee Sklar or Chuck Rainey of those cats. But he, uh, it was just like the idea of saying, "Don't play yourself. Just play straight beats." Like that to me was well, like confused the heck out of that guy. Well, he just. I mean, he chose a life. I mean, he just. He he just was like, I'm out of here. Like, I, I this is yeah. not what I want to do. I'm not interested in well, you know. Because it's two different kinds of musicians, and I, it sounds like the guy was giving him a kind of a session request. On Absolutely. A band. Those guys have a band sound. Wasn't that the drummer from the Birds or one of those? Well, he Mike. Well, no, that's right. Uh, uh, he, that's that was the name of the drummer, but Mike Mike Clark was from uh, Herbie Hancock's Headhunters. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. it, it sounds like then the same thing kind of applies, though. The uh, producer was in there, and he was wanting to hammer a certain thing out of the guy. And to tell you the truth, uh, okay, it's Herbie Hancock. So it's Herbie Hancock songs. It's supposed to sound the way Herbie Hancock and his producer want him to sound. If the drummer has a hard time giving him that, then maybe he's he's out of his element. But personally, if I was that drummer, I'd have been searching around to try to give them what they want. I did, no, no, a hundred, and I think part of, totally, I think part of it is just going to, you know, being, Mike, Clark, Mike is a, a jazzer through and through, and, and you can go back 
in and listen to so many of those classic jazz records and you know whether it was Max Roach or Mickey Roke or Pete LaRocca, Tony Williams, I mean everyone you can tell everybody had their own individual sound. They certainly did. So it's just it was about the idea of like yeah, just the idea of saying like what I what bothers me like I listen to Butch playing I listen to you guys play on that stack deck record and he's playing some interesting grooves he's not necessarily always keeping time on the bass drum he's like all over the place and all i'm saying is just there's a there's been a homogenization of music over time where it's very hard to know and again we're not talking about instrumental improvisational music all the time but it's just very hard to tell who anybody is anymore because it feels like at especially at the pop level i mean so much of it is mechanical but also they've really stripped yeah Here's a little thing to consider, like, I understand Fender guitars, at least one time was, not too long, was kind of going through a thing where they weren't selling as many guitars because there's not any visible guitar heroes anymore. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Right. Like, you know, we had, you know, Eric Clapton, Jimi Hendrix, this guy, that guy, Jeff Beck, uh, you know, blues guy, you know, hundreds. And uh, everybody had a hero, bass player heroes. But there's not the the music other than maybe country music is pretty homogenized and maybe country music too now you know although the top bass player of from Nashville just died last week Michael Rhodes that's what Billy was saying yeah totally uh, he's the guy we all aspired to be man it was like that guy the shining top of the mountain. And then about another 25 guys below him. <laughs> and then about another 500 guys like me chasing the same nickel around there, you know. <laughs> but he was like one guy. He was who he was the most heard bass player. And you know what? I, I don't mean to get sideways, but he was the supreme studio guy. He played with the Beach Boys one day and, I don't know, Clint Black or somebody the next. I just make an analogy, but it doesn't matter. Didn't matter what it was. He was. You're telling me he was already on the scene when you guys were just. Uh, uh, not long after he got there in the early '80s. He's a little younger. Right, than us. right. But, uh, just about the whole time I was in Nashville, he was the top dog. I lived there 25 years before I moved down. Did here. you? Did you guys just to put a button on these? This, uh, <laughs> this, these are this sort of early rhythm aces in the studio. Did you guys? Um, have any baffles did you use earphones or was it just like yeah sam phillips they had all that they in fact some of them were built in they could the walls were burlap uh, they had hard surfaces and then you could pull it up pull it like a hinge door thing open and uh yeah it had about and then they had roller baffles and all that kind of stuff and you know regular phones you know regular students. i see i'm but you know what i was saying is like is like butch like to me like i love i love leakage and i i to me like he wasn't in a drum booth was he yeah he actually was he yeah, they, they, really they had a drum booth wow a video not long ago. Wow. still there wow really but they don't set them up there anymore. They set them out out on the floor. It's a different different, different philosophy now. Well, what's the how does it change? Could you talk? I mean, I'm just as a 45 year old journalist. I this is critical because I well, just well they put them out there because they you know like put mics up in the air. They put them 10 feet away and 20 feet away and like that. And you end up you can build a really big drum sound pretty naturally by the miking and by space. You know right. So the philosophies of recording drums, especially drums, because it's an iffy deal. 
you know, he'd go in, the drummer has to show up to the session at least an hour before the session, uh, especially, you know, even if there's house drums there that's already mic'd, because each guy kind of got his own thing, you know. Bass player sound check takes about five minutes. (laughs) Did you, can you talk about a time, even with Jesse or when you were playing live, um, when, like, essentially, you know, you go back to, I remember interviewing Cropper, and he was talking about, I mean, just early on, like there, like when you were playing live, you were playing out of antiquated PA systems, obviously not when you were on tour with the Eagles, but, you know, earlier than that, like early 70s, that kind of, like, were there times with Butch where you, maybe the bass, there what you guys, you know, you didn't have an amp or the drum, you know, you had to really grow your ears in order to hear everything because to me uh it, i mean it was just it was a i think that you guys just had huge ears grow you know your ears grew so much on the bandstand because you know you didn't have in-ear monitors thank god you know oh, no. you were playing off all the invi- i just wonder if you could talk about a time with you and butch or just when 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 it was just you know you you, you had to just get through the gig but it turned out looking back on it, that it was incredibly valuable because your ears grew the most? I don't know if it was any one particular one, but, I mean, back then, it, the, the, shall I say, the state of the art, you know, and we still joke about that now, you know. The, 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 like, in Fatback, before we were right, the rhythm right. pieces, we had a guy that he stole lumber from a building site and built speaker cabinets. So we didn't know he was stealing the lumber. <laughs> yeah, whatever. He's just taking, yeah, that is unbelievable. Stolen lumber, you know, and a couple of JBLs and put them in there, a couple of horns. And, and that's what we had, you know, you had whatever, I mean, it, it's a constantly changing world out there, music gear and all that. But back in those days, there was only about three or four brands of drums and guitars and sound systems and that. So you made the best you had with what you had. And since how there wasn't anything to compare it to, nobody had been to like see Bruno Mars. <laughs> right, 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 right. No, I did. Know, in some Coliseum or something, you know, so you heard what you heard. Like I remember during that time, I went to see the Rolling Stones, which was 1972, I think. Sure. And uh, that's when they had, they just got their Ampeg amps. They were all playing big Ampeg amps. They had a big mirror over the stage and they shot uh, their super troopers, they were called back then, these uh, spotlights. And they shot them from behind the amp line up into the mirror and it reflected down on the band. At that time, that was like the most state-of-the-art thing anybody had ever seen. (laughs) Uh, No, that was no digital anything, you know. Just a big big bunch of piles of black boxes on either side of the stage and that was the rolling stones you know but still i'll never forget that concert you know i'd seen them about five times over about 35 years i guess uh go yeah, go go you know i mean that's, i that's that what made you better really man the lack of being able to to hear good then it made you listen more made you clamp down that's more. what i'm talking about yeah, stick that's what i'm talking about is the idea yeah, of through attrition man you know it's not because you couldn't you you, you, to me if the technology is so superseded humanity that it people become overly reliant on that and back then it was it was you know it was like survival but that you know 
but I'm an old guy, and, and today, you know, I, the, my values don't really, I mean, I know they might sound charming, but really, today, it's different how they do that. Even the studios are different. Like at Sam Phillips, and most studios were like that back when I was living in Nashville and everything. Okay, the control room is relatively small. Paint machine, the mixing console, a couple of chairs, and a couch. That's right. And then a big room for drums, bass. Everybody's out on the floor, but it's not like that now. They build the tracks. So the control room is big. And the only thing out on the floor is a set of drums, maybe. And everybody else in a control room. And they stack the tracks around there by one, two, three, four, kick off. You know, it's not like that. And people are building the tracks. Everybody may not even be in the same town. Believe know? me, it, it's... A, 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 it takes I, the soul right out of it. It just, it's just, it's just, it's so demoralizing because it's the lack of humanity playing together, lack of pulse. The point is that. Kind of fits the times, doesn't it? <laughs> absolutely, man. Absolutely does. I, you know, um, you know, I want to be clear about something. <laughs> On a beautiful lie, it sounds to me that Bird is playing a pedal steel guitar. Did he play pedal steel too? Oh yeah, because yeah, it's, it's just so funny because it, it, it you know, well because on the back of the album I checked today and it says steel guitar, uh, it, it says uh, electric. It, it doesn't say pedal steel, but I'm like that dude. Well, it's the same. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, he played steel, mandolin, electric guitar, and around Nashville. See, after the Aces were over, then that's when Bird and I became very close. Hmm. After the band broke up years later, then we worked together in Nashville. It was different. It was like him and then us five guys down here because we were just a bunch of dimwits, you know, and it was just, he was a master. Whatever he touched, he knew it. He was one of those guys. He could pick up an instrument and he could master it in a day. He was just that kind of guy. That is, I just want to go back to when you first connected with him and like, Ultimately, he like the reason I ended up down there in Tennessee, I met those guys in Chicago. I was living there, and that guy, man, this little band I was playing with in Chicago opened first. There wasn't even it was Butch the drummer from the Aces and Bird and some guys up in Chicago. I didn't know them; they were up there making a record, and I was just in a little blues band. And we opened their their show for them in a club, and here's Bird, and he's got like three foot long hair and fat fingers like sausages and playing that thing like it's an angel Jesus. and and that wasn't even then what they really hired him for around town i'm jumping ahead some years it's all right after, after we're there in nashville people hired him now he played everything he played mandolin steel electric acoustic uh you know banjo anything got strings i guess he could play some bass but not while i'm there but um, <laughs> uh, he was. They'd hired him to play acoustic rhythm because he had like these fine sounding acoustic guitars, Taylors and Martins, big jumbo guitars, and his touch. Now you looked at his fingers, you couldn't see how possibly like play like a gut string guitar. But he sounded angelic, and I hate to sound corny, but if he's standing next to me, I'd tell him, man. Hey, man, you're not corny, Stick. I've been waiting to talk to you for years, man. This is great. Bird, <laughs> but early, did he, did early on, throw away all the, you know, once you guys settled in, did he did he help you learn to play without fear? Did Was he a mentor to yes. you? Yes. Yeah. He taught me how to be a studio musician, and what that, me and Butch both, because we both wanted to be that. And what he taught us was when to not play. 
because playing in bars and stuff, every, you play everything you know, every bar. Look at me, look at me. Yeah, <laughs> right, up, right. Know? But in the studio, uh, 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 it's the opposite. In doubt, don't play. Less is more yeah. kind of thing. You bet. That, that, that's, that's absolutely it, you know? Wow. Um, Dude, I am really, I missed the boat. I didn't, you know, it's funny going back and I'm like, you know, Russell was clearly the, the, the showman and the band leader. And I mean, I've genius. I mean, he's a, I freaking love that cat. He hated that shit. He didn't want to be, you know, he, I know he didn't want to be that, but I just bird bird is like bird was an avatar and instrumentally just could do everything. Absolutely. Once he, if he touched your life, you never forgot him. I'm telling you that. If if he touched your life, look, go back and I don't know. You saw where Billy posted him the other day. You should look at to see what people said about him. You know. Oh, dude, uh, unbelievable. Yeah. Michael Rhodes was the same. Not only did they talk about him being such a creative musician and such a joy to have on the session and when i saw michael Rhodes sitting on there i knew there was going to be a great session but they said eclipsed only by what a fine man he was i dig and i, I kept reading that these guys these are heavy hitters guys play with delbert mcclinton and like that you know uh and they're all responding and they're talking about this Michael. And, and i'm thinking bird was the same Bird was the kind of guy that if he touched your life, you remembered him, you know. And uh, I just was lucky that I got to be around him. In fact, later in life, he had been married and his wife passed away. And then he met somebody new. And so they bought a house. So I bought his house. And that's where I lived until I didn't live in Nashville anymore. I bought his house. Wow. We did you know, sessions together. Every time I I got a session to put together that I was a leader on, he was my first call. And if he couldn't make it, then I would try to change it because um, he always made them go so smooth. And people were confident because a lot of times there's people I met overseas or something or from out of town coming to Nashville, you know, and they're counting on me to have the right guys there to right. help them realize their dream. Unfortunately, very few, any of us realize their dream, but hey, we all try and, you know, uh, I mean, if you get it, yeah, if you're going to get into the band business, it's a forever journey. I mean, you never get to the oh, end. Yeah. yeah. I, I know nothing else. You know, <laughs> I, even to this day, you know, I mean, I'm, uh, you know, I'm playing three times this week, you know, dude, I wish I could come down and and I, I got to get down there and see you. But I, I this is important. This is for bass players. I was just I wanted you to talk about how you learned to make the notes round, uh, like big see. round. You know, I mean, the idea today. The other issue with, like you said, they're they're they're. Uh, I forget the term you use. They're stacking the their. Uh, yeah, where they stack up the tracks. Right, they stack. They so, so everything is. There's like, and there's like a, a a quantized up and down feel, and it, I I don't get off on that kind of rhythm. It's all mechanical. Even sometimes you you hear like you hear someone playing, you're like, that's got to be a machine. You walk in, it's a human being playing machine parts, and and so that's what I was talking about. Is the reason I love the way you play is because the notes. You make the notes round, and that's an old school skill. And I wanted you to talk about that. 
<coughs> well, on, you're talking about from those old Aces records. Absolutely. At that time, I played a Fender Precision bass <laughs> later, and that they sort of are like that. That <coughs> right. Me, that's what Jamerson played right and that was just kind of what we played then. But then later, a bird found a jazz bass for me, and I'm still playing it. Oh so my! God. What kind of bass is it? It's a '66 jazz bass, and I still play it. Dude, are you album. kidding me? That is sick. Yeah, sitting right here, man. Yeah, I use it on <laughs> sessions and stuff. But Bird found it for me. It was in a pawn shop, man. Face <laughs> down there. It's probably worth about ten grand now, but it was like two hundred dollars. Oh my, I love it. So how did that change your playing? I mean, because like I mean, uh, you know, I, mean, I haven't even talked to you about how you, you know, you developed calluses and started bleeding and stuff. Well, you know, yeah, but that's not so much it. Uh, it's man, it's touch. It's how you touch the strings, um, and where where you plucked a note at. That's right. Uh, now on a jazz bass, it's two pickups. So if you're on that front pickup closer to the butt of the neck, then those notes are going to be softer, rounder. Uh, and if you move back, like towards the back pickup, towards the bridge, then they're going to be more staccato, more pronounced. So within the jazz bass, you can, even though it looks like a kind of a simple instrument, uh, you can do many things with it. Like I like definition of note these days because it took me a long time to figure out which ones like each other mm -hmm. but yeah um that round sound is flat wound strings and that's that's pretty popular again these days they for a long time was round wound strings so i use some of each you know <laughs> some on one bass and some on another you know did you but that's kind of how that how that came about it was because originally people tried to emulate the upright bass sound right but, you know, in the years preceding, you know, you can all these great electric players with all these techniques and like that, you know. Um, and then there's, you know, like the great Leland Sklar. I watch him. I follow him on YouTube. He's been out with Lyle Lovett here lately. Absolutely. Been showing the, but yeah, he's a guy, you know, a real wizard of uh, many, but he's not like an acrobatic wizard, you know. Uh, exactly, dude. He's just like, he's a total chameleon, man. You bet, man, and that's uh, hey, that's I, that's how I describe studio player's job, man. Be a chameleon, chameleon esque. Okay, so stick. Uh, why don't why don't we put a a little? We just cooked for forty minutes. Why don't we? You want to do another forty in a couple days when you're feeling a little bit better? I mean, we just burn through that. Yeah, please do, man. I'm really enjoying. Also, I want to just have a quick mention. I see a post that you put on Facebook today by Blue Lou Marini. My, I've done, dude, my hero. My one of my heroes. Yeah, well, he played with us on Saturday Night Live. We were at May 10, 1980. It's the next to last show, of the original cast, fifth season. Are you so kidding? We, wait, wait, hold on. Wait, the, the rhythm yeah, aces. Him and David Sanborn played. The, we did two songs: Third Rate Romance, which Bill Murray came out and played Morocco. No, he did, dude. Stop right now, dude. Are you kidding? He even bought a tape. He even bought a cassette. And practiced in his dressing room. I heard him. I stood by the fucking door and heard him practicing it. Oh my! God. Check it out. You said same. He weighs about ninety pounds. We became kind of friends. So we saw him two, three more times after that. You know, over the years. And uh, and then the second song is uh, that first song is "Who Will the Next Who Will Be?" A Charlie Rich. That's song. my favorite too. I love the way you guys did that tune. You know. And uh, that Blue Lou and David Sanborn are on 
on that one with us. Well, that's when the, that's when the Blues Brothers was cooking hard at that time, you know. With, uh, right, it was yeah. right before the Blues Brothers. This was 1980. They started later that year, man. But it was it was in fact they may have already been rehearsing for it. Yeah, they were. That's so mad. So the that is so beautiful. Yeah, and I, I uh, stick. We'll we'll just keep digging at this, man. I we'll we'll, we'll put All a right. put a time together. Willie Hall again. Tell him old Stick says, "Hey, I love Willie. We played together. Me and him and Billy E. We played together a lot around Memphis." Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna send you his number. You should give him a call. Okay. All right. Yeah, I, yeah we message each other on Facebook. But yeah, man, send me his number. I'd love to have it, man. Stick, I love but you, hey, man. Call me anytime, bro. I'm glad to talk, man. People need to hear about this because it's otherwise it gets lost. Hey, man, know? listen, I, we're listen when some 50 years from now when we're both not here anymore, all I care about is younger cats searching for authenticity because there is no authenticity in recorded music today for the most part. And they're going to hear this stuff. And if they, if it affects one person, then we've done our job, baby. Well, let's hope. Let's hope you're, you're absolutely right. Hey, you're younger than me, but you, you have Hey man, I've been on this trip for 12 years, 1800 interviews, five books. I can tell you that that's exactly what's happening. So don't ever keep your heart open. I feel your wisdom, brother. Maybe young in years, but you're old. And, you <laughs> so know, old soul, baby. Yo, man, I'll talk to you soon, Stick. Hey, call me anytime. Thank you, Jay. All right, brother. Be cool. Bye-bye. Bye. What an honor it is to bring in a cat. That uh, We had a cosmic uh, first installment the other day. Looking forward to breaking it down again. Jeff Stick Davis, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. Well, thank you, Jake. Honored to be here. Thank you for thinking of me. You know, one thing that I really wanted to touch on with you is um, a couple of these cats, um, <clears throat> Charles Wig Walker, Johnny Jones, the, these these blues cats that are not household names nationally, uh, in my mind, uh, when did you first at least start seeing these guys? Let I mean, I know you played with them with Billy, but... Were these guys like mainstays uh, in that southern region? Were you hip to them before you played with them? Uh, I wasn't. They were back uh, more like around in the 60s. There was quite a vibrant blues and rhythm and blues scene in Nashville, in addition to the country music scene there. Mm. And there was a TV show and all that stuff. And, um, uh, uh, those guys, especially Johnny Jones and Wig, and there was several, I don't know, maybe t- 10 of them or so that, uh, uh, Billy and I played with, but they were from that area right there. Cause they were all still living there. And this producer we know went back and sort of revived their careers. But those guys had at the time, pretty vibrant careers, I guess, through the, the South and Southeast anyway, you know. You uh, you consider them uh, playing what we would call the Chitlin circuit back in the sixties? I, I would say that was exactly what they did. <laughs> did you did you as a young curious cat go to these juke joints or Chitlin circuit? Did you have a chance to play in one of those places where the floor floorboards were coming out of the the nails were coming out of the floorboards and people were just getting down? I went to some. I was uh, I. At least where I grew up in southern Indiana, there was only a couple of places like that. I remember seeing Jerry Lee Lewis one time, and that was pretty interesting. Uh, Can you talk about that? He was playing at a black club, or he was just playing at a juke joint? Well, it was just 
just kind of a juke joint. I mean, sometimes they had black artists, sometimes they had white artists. It was just a, a, a stop along the way in southern Indiana. And it had it was a, just a funky place. It might have been a skate rink once upon a time, but it had a, a like a potbelly stove in the middle of the place. Oh, I love this so much, dude. Don't even tell me they were cooking stuff in there while the, the music was going on. <laughs> well, there's no telling. Believe me. I'm, I'm just interested in the music, you know. I dig. So, I dig. There was uh, like I remember seeing Mitch Ryder in the Detroit Wheels. They're like a very young Mitch Ryder. Absolutely, you know? yeah. And uh, I, I was extremely impressed by what appeared to me quite. He's quite sincere, you know, in his uh, his presentation, you know. And every Detroit guys like. I was from southern Indiana, as I said, so, uh, like, I more, like, went up to Chicago and stuff when I was a kid. I went up there and saw, well, whoever there was to see at different times. Sometimes I'd see groups like Grateful Dead and stuff like that, but then, you know, before I got to play with them, I'd BB would play up there quite a bit, and, you know, sometimes I'd get to go up there and see him just a time or two, you know, because that was, you know, he was the top act around town he played like uh posh clubs and not so much the juke joints or that oh no dude it's funny because uh i don't know if you've ever played or hung hung out with charlie musclewhite but he he said that the only cat i mean it's a myth the only real cats that had steady seven night a week gigs were bb king and howlin wolf and the rest of the guys would play but they were like working in the factories and stuff well, that's why a lot of these uh, guys went up north from, like, especially guys that start out in Mississippi and the Delta and like that. They strictly went up north for the jobs, you know. Absolutely. And a lot of times they brought their talent with it, and sometimes their talent, they were lucky enough, their talent got them, made them able to escape the factories and, you know, I mean, which they make people that work in factories make really good money and all that at that time, and... But, you know, some of those artists, that's how they end up being from the north there, Detroit and Chicago, especially, you know, that area. Did you see, maybe looking back on it, did you see that Southern Indiana juke joint, regardless of, I mean, whether they brought in Black Axe or White Axe, was it one of the few places that was actually kind of desegregated? Hmm. At that time, I mean, that was like early 60s, and I mean, Southern Indiana, I mean... I can't. Yeah. I can't oh. see there being a lot of desegregation going on in, at that time. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm just kind of trying to think what that was like there. I, I mean, I left there right about '69 mm. or '70. You know, out looking for. I didn't figure anybody was going to come to discover me there or anything. You know, I didn't know too much, but I didn't figure anybody was going to be sent talent scouts up to Evansville. Indiana. Yeah, we're sick, man. We got some guy in Southern Indiana, man. He's a good, he's a killer player, man. So I knew I had to go find whatever it was. You know, there wasn't any internet or anything. You know, you just had to go places and see if things worked out. And sometimes I'd go to these places and I'd see musicians and hear about them and everything. The people I'd heard about. You know, and I got to see them live, and uh, but you know, I remember I spent a like a year each in Chicago, and Minneapolis, and uh, Montreal. You know, back when I was coming up, 
And I wasn't looking to particularly play blues. I was just looking to play. I wouldn't, you know, I didn't really know what it was I wanted to do. I just figured I'd know it when I saw it or it would pick me or something, you know. I love it. I mean, I want to focus specifically on <clears throat> Chicago. I mean, where were were you playing on Rush Street? Were you... Yeah, I was like who? Who? There. What kind of gigs did I mean? I know you were, you know, like Mr. Kelly's was there, which was more of a kind of a post bop or like you know jazz club. Yeah. But I'm just curious about like some of the cat because I mean there were so many dudes like, well, then there was uh, the Record Mart, Sam Turner. You had, um, and you had just all these incredible black artists, Big Joe Williams and Johnny Young. I, I'm just curious if, if if you had, even though you, even though you didn't necessarily see exactly what you wanted at that time, did you get a taste for that the authentic blues? I did, uh, especially about the uh, only guy I got to actually play with. Which I was pretty young, you know. There's there's seasoned players all over the place, you know. Oh my God, yeah. Uh, but. Uh, uh, Otis Rush was a guy, he was around quite a bit, and I got to play with him a little bit, and that was quite Can you honor. please tell me about, I, dude, I have this album, Cold Day in Hell, it's the best album ever, Otis Rush. What, that, what was he, you know, I mean, these guys were not, um, this wasn't an intellectual exercise for them, but I just wanted you to talk about the grease, and the grit, and the, and, and sort of, the things that you still that you took away from I mean that's a I that's an iconic dude to play with at that age and I just wonder what you could talk about in terms of his just his aura and his essence. I remember him being like really generous about that, like uh, you know, uh, encouraging like young people to play with him because I was just about probably. 20 i guess uh, i'm not even sure if i was 21 yet when i when i kind of left town looking for whatever it was but i just remember uh man everybody was nice to one another you know and, mm -hmm. and the guy like that he seemed like he encouraged people to come and play with him and uh, i know that i didn't get to play with muddy waters but he was still playing around town I, he was touring as well but he play in town but uh he had like he generally have his seasoned guys with him and then he might have one or two younger white guys with him you're playing guitar harmonica and like that so a lot of those bands were mixed that's right that's and that's interesting. On, when I we lived uh, the whole amazing rhythm aces, we ended up living in Memphis, and that's where we really did our records and all that. And uh, the bands were all mixed around there, you know. Now they they had their own guys were from around there, uh, Al Green and yeah, uh, Willie Willie Mitchell and you know Al Jacks. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But I. Bands were mixed there. Uh, that's mm -hmm. more where, uh, you know, uh, really got a taste of the in-town scene there, too. I was a bit young when I was in Chicago, and I, I didn't, like I said, I didn't know what I was even looking for. I just know I was just looking around, you know. Dude, I would have loved to have, I would have loved to have been hanging with you at that time. Because, you know, in some ways, that innocence... There was no internet. You didn't know where cats were. You could stumble in somewhere. I, I just remember talking to a guy, this guy Hawk Walensky, um, who was in a band called Medora, and those guys were ripping it up in Chicago around that time, 70, that range, and 
He said there were nights where George Benson would just roll in after his gig with, you know, and check them out after his gig with McDuff. I mean, did you, you're going to tell me that you never went to go see uh, Cleveland Eaton or these upright, did you check, I, I know you weren't a jazzer, but did you go see, I mean, it was a hotbed of activity. There was the, you know, you had the Von Freeman was there and, you know, uh, uh, Ahmad Jamal was there. Did you ever, did you go? No, I didn't understand. I wasn't familiar with any of those names or anything. I was pretty naive. Uh, like, I was more like uh, Paul Butterfield. Blues oh, well, that's just fine, dude. He was there, right? Yeah. He, 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 was, he was living there. Yeah. Uh, you know, Paul was still alive at that time. And those, you know, that cool band he had, those players were all around town, like, uh, he had this bass player, Jerome Arnold, and man, he was just the nicest, most giving guy. You oh, know? I love uh, it, man. You know, you'd see him playing with somebody, man, and he'd say, man, would you please sit in, you know? <laughs> and, you know, he knew you wanted to, maybe you'd be a little, he would just be a little nervous to ask or something, man. But, uh, yeah, uh, you know, I, unfortunately, my uh, formal training or something stopped, as maybe I'd mentioned about the time I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, you know? Sure. Um, well, so, you just, you, you recognized at that time that, um, like you could just kind of skiffle your way through. You didn't need the ac- the academy, so to speak, when you saw the Beatles. Well, I mean, yeah, I, you know, I even got to see them, you know. Right. And I mean, hey, we didn't know any better. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, uh, we just well to hear their story. Hey, they just figured it out. Only they were just better at figuring it out than most. You know. Well, they. I mean, there was also some intrinsic. I mean, they came at it from like. Um, I, I just feel like it was funny. I was doing an interview earlier, and uh, just talking about sort of the the working class background they came up in, and also I just feel like they had stories through their own experiences to tell. And so they were like, well, we're just going to write original tunes. They were good-looking guys. They came along when there were three TV stations in the United States. And they also came around when LSD was still legal. So everyone's brains were blown open. And basically, it was just this perfect combination of timing and, and... and and luck and just talent, you know. But it did. It, it, it that took very, that sort of intersection, you know, sort of culture and timing or whatever. I'm not sure if that can happen again like that. But also, you know, all of those guys, like over there from England, I didn't know what it was like. I always wanted to go over there, and then I started going over there a bit later in life, touring over there, and realized a lot of what happened. Those guys, it came about out of poverty. Talk about that. That's exactly what I want to talk about. Talk about that. Talk about that. Because I think, because I think Robbie Robertson was the same, he grew up in Cabbage Town in Toronto. Rough upbringing. So talk about how that, that struggle, poverty. Well, that was deliverance from that. I mean, some guys, you know, you used what you had. So some guys might have been good at baseball or something else and then but you know some people they you know they saw that as their escape sure right uh but over there in england i remember even like uh, those guys when they were the beatles when they were just being kids being a band 
they heard about a guy across town that knew how to make a B7 chord on a guitar. I don't know if you play guitar or whatever. But no, I know the chord, chord, though, yeah. yeah. That's a handful, you know, when you start learning with your left hand. But they didn't know how to make it, so they all four got on a city bus and rode all the way across town and went to the guy's door and had him show them wow. how to play a B7 wow. chord. Because they didn't have even like a little music book or something, you know. <laughs> it was just a, a word of mouth and showing each other and where we had AM and FM radio and stuff like that. When they brought up, they didn't even have that kind of radio. They had like what we call crystal radio, the cat's whisker. Absolutely. Uh, there, there was a there was a boat or something, right? Some kind of boat. Uh, yeah. Now, later on, then, they went, because uh, the BBC was pretty conservative. That's they, right. They weren't having any of that, you know. So these guys, they had these pirate radio stations, these ships, Radio Caroline, and uh, I think that was <laughs> one of them. Pirate radio. That's pretty exciting. Dude, that was the best, man, because they're, they're, oh, God. that you <clears throat> Can you talk, though? I mean, I remember... So yeah, okay. The 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 aces you you had connections, you had studios. All you guys were very competent players. You had already you and Billy had already had a lot of experience with with Jesse and stuff. But I remember uh, interviewing uh, the keyboardist. <clears throat> one of the keyboardists for Santana was Tommy Coster, and and him and him and Ndugu Chancellor, the drummer during the. Uh, during the tours, you know, they, they, those guys were, were really clean. You know, they didn't party a lot, so they were hanging out in their room a lot, and they'd, they'd get a little melodica together and some sticks and just start working out rhythms. And, uh, you know, that's where a lot of the germs of the songs came from. And, and so I'm wondering about, like, with the, with the Aces, like, because after the first album, you guys saw a lot of, well, I mean, it was you had some hit tunes, but did you know when you talk about that indigenous quality of jumping on a bus and going checking out what a guitar you know a B7 is it did did some of those songs late on the later I mean you did five albums maybe more uh at least through this through the decade of the 70s did some of those songs come about very innocently though for you guys they started out that way sure they sure did um in that um especially if, uh, like Russell Smith was the primary songwriter and you can kind of see his songs evolve through the years. But then uh, a little later on, say like into about the third record on uh, uh, Russell and a couple other guys wrote a bit, but you can, they've, they've learned about, the formula of songwriting see before those songs a lot of times they didn't quite fit the form the form or formula of song well there was no formula really really yeah Yeah. third great romance was like 14 bar verses and stuff oh my god yeah uh and uh, you should see me try to teach it to people i I don't teach I'm the bass player. Drag them through it. Oh man, dude! They want me to even do it. I actually sing it on my gigs here. You know, Um, I bet they do. I bet they do. (laughs) Um, But later on, so I mean, some of that magic, uh, the it it became a little more formulaic once there was some kind of model in place. Slowed down, and it's more of a job kind of picked up. You know. Yeah. For, for some of this. And I'm not saying they became jaded or anything, but, you know, a couple of those guys became 
uh, professional songwriter. Exactly. You get locked into the machine, and, and all. The, I mean, I remember Taj Mahal telling me he's like, "Man, I saw some of the." You know, obviously those cats were making good dough, but he's like, I just saw some musicians so amazing, so talented, and the minute they got plugged into that machine, they were never the same. Um, yeah, let's get two or three of those checks out there where they need a dump truck to haul them to the bank, you know, and <laughs> around home cranking out moon spoon between the jeans, you know, moon and moon and it's not such a bad job, but, you, you know, I'm not... Um, you know, while the songs themselves may take you on some sort of musical journey, a lot of times the people that write them are, you know, said, okay, that's enough for day. Let's go have a beer. That's, that, well, that's exactly right. And it takes away from that idea of that, like, true, authentic, like, what are you really living through? What is your life story? I don't know if, that's, if that makes it less artsy or not. I might have thought that once upon a time, but... You know, you get more proficient, uh, compartmentalize that. No, I, 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 dude, you know, man, I dig it. I, 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 but I, I like the idea of still having a tune that swings and it's not part of any kind of formula, you know, where it's just completely, um, it's just, it's in a very organic thing. It's like going to Greece and, and, you know, people are dancing in, in the meter of nine or something, you know, it's like, that's just, that's where they're from. That's what they know. That's what their life is, you know. And um, and this idea of the efficiency lot. You guys are a perfect example of that, you know, where that came into play and you had to have a certain beat and you had to have, you know, the song had to be a certain. I mean, it's always been. And maybe I touched on this before, but especially in Memphis, when the group finally came together and all that, we were exposed to. We weren't really aware of that other kind of musician I was talking about, the guys that played on the record. Absolutely. Because when we'd see touring bands, we'd think, oh, those guys are a band. They all get together and make those records. Absolutely. I dig, man. Well, later on, you know, we found out now. (laughs) It's it's, it's Hal Blaine in there, man. Yeah. You know, there's because uh, I explained it to some guys one time, a long time ago. I helped some guys put a little country band together, and they're going through things. They looked up on YouTube, and they were saying, Man, that drummer ain't playing anything like what he was playing. <laughs> 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 that ain't who played on the record. The guy playing the record looked like me, or they're big old fat guys eating pie between tables. Oh, I love it, dude. I freaking and love then it. They get the pretty guys out on the road that they pay 100 bucks a day. You know, they get to get 500 bucks a day guys in the studio making the records. Did you, so you're, I mean, did you see like Beach Boys, like those kinds of bands? Because it's funny because like, yeah. I mean, I was, you know, a lot of times they thought you in there fooling around, but it was more like the the spare. I would see like, uh, um, oh, I don't know, guys around Sun, like uh, Jerry Lee was around there a lot. It's kind of weird. I was influenced by him a little bit when I was a kid and then later on when I discovered about country music, you know, but like it was, uh, I don't know, whoever was around town at the time, like Charlie Ritz was there and I got to hang with Charlie Ritz a little bit and he sent his manager over or sent to to have me come over and talk to him about playing with him. I remember (laughs) Charlie Ritz and, uh, and man, it was really cool. He showed me a seven-car garage and everything in a studio. And they took me back home and dropped me off. And he never played another show. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> but, 
But you, what you're saying is a lot of times, like, <clears throat> I mean, they weren't playing, like, overly sophisticated music, but the truth is that a lot of the times that there were, you'd say the majority of the bands that you were seeing, uh, you the, it wasn't the cats that, those cats were not playing on the records. Yeah, most of the time it's not, because it's a whole different kind of thing. You know, yeah. guys that play live, they tend to overplay, as I did, you know. Absolutely. That was the beauty of, like, uh, Bird, for example. You know, I, me and Butch both, we had to unlearn and relearn how to play. You right. know, because we were overplaying. Fantasy is when you first get in the studio, oh, I always show them all my hot legs, man. Play them all every bar, when in fact the polar opposite is true. Play less. Well, it's also about like, I mean, because those cats in the studio being such chameleons, whether it's a jingle or a commercial or soundtrack, I mean, they're used to. Well, that's just about, but you got to, you know, what is the song called calling for? You know, it's really not about chops per se. Like that, that becomes like, you become like that studio shark and you guys were, you think you were overly verbose on your instrument with Winchester? No, I didn't even know how to play back then. <laughs> so when were you talking too much? What what was the environment that you, that you re- when you that you realized once you got in the studio that you were saying too much? Well, you know, now if I listen to even like early Aces records or or stuff like that, or I used to have a bunch of the demos and right. All. And other records, I, I still got a bunch of CDs, but I'm not sure if I have records anymore. Of different things I put on, but God, going back listening to that, you know, I'm playing too much. <laughs> right because, you know, it didn't matter back then it, it, like it does now, where everything was so quantitized. Like now, man, that bass there, no better land on that kick drum because they're going to go back there and scoot it over. Yeah. Well, I don't even want to even go there. I mean, you 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 were very um, diplomatic about um, the times we live in, but I I find that lack of authenticity very demoralizing, uh, and that the idea that you have you know I'm old school, man. Yeah, there's nothing like uh, four guys sitting out there out on the floor and the control you know guy engineer and the control room, four guys out there just bass, drums, guitar, piano, or something. And making a track, that fifth person is created from those four guys. You're you darn right, dude. Under, you know, and now but the studios, I've maybe mentioned before, aren't like that. For There's not room for four guys out there. There's room for like a drum kit. They build the tracks one instrument at a time. And I've only talked about a, a groove killer to me. Anyway, did you know I'm with you, man? And and the idea that like, okay, well then that your bass line does that note doesn't fall on the kick drum pattern. It's like okay, like, but the song still feels good. I mean, that stuff was left in, and they don't how to make it feel good. I guess I mean you know I the the uh, I wanted to ask you about like um, where were you at in your? I mean the the aces were already very well established, but like that. That time around 1980 when club owners really decided, it's just like what you said, there, there's no room in the studio now because they just, they don't need to have real people. They just can have a drum kit in there, make it really efficient, cost effective, and that's great. But, um, and then you had the same thing going on in the clubs, you know, late 70s, early 80s, where um, club owners were like, oh, why are we paying a quintet? 
why not just bring in a DJ? You know, when did, how did you, what was, where were you at in your career? And ultimately, is that why, is that why you picked? John yeah. Mayall, so I didn't really see a lot of that because <laughs> uh, I'm right sorry, after, you you played with Mayall? Yeah, right after the ace was over. I think it was about eight, <laughs> June of '81. Aces, I think, last date uh, the old days was January of '81. Right, May of '81. Uh, what happened was a, a friend of mine just called me. He said, "Hey, go get your bass and come over to this certain studio." And they track me down to the music store. That's kind of weird. Usually people call you a week ahead of time or something. That's incredible. No cell phones so or anything. Yeah. And he didn't say anything. He says, go get your bass, come over here. Don't say nothing. You know, so when somebody tells you that, you know, there could be Elvis or something. What <laughs> <laughs> with us anymore at that point. Well, right. Elvis died there, too. That's another story. Yeah, yeah. I went over and the lights were low. So David Planet studio there. And the lights were low, but I could hear it, that voice, you know, if I knew his voice, you know, and everything, he's warming up. And so we go in there and there's John Mayall, man. And so, you know, um, I just start doing some tracks. And man, we hadn't even hardly gotten acquainted. And the first thing he says, well, hey, uh, you know, you want to go to Europe? <laughs> oh, my. You know, I do. I got to send you my interview with him. It was so interesting because he was. Was up for a Grammy, man. That guy. Dude, that, I mean, did you, that's what I'm curious about. Like, we talk about that, the Beatles and things like that, but were, when the, um, you know, Mayall's bands in the 70s were full of blues and jazz players. I mean, did you wind up, did you guys, not that you shared bills with, uh, you know, uh, uh, blues breakers or things like that, but were you. It was called Memphis Blues Breakers. It was a, another blues breaker of as many blues breakers band. <laughs> it was just a re, it was it was regional to Mem- he wanted that Memphis kind of groove. I guess you know which, and I guess that's what we gave. Him. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, you know uh, he was one of those kind of guys that surrounded himself, uh, you know, with good players, and uh, you know, of course his. God, the players that came to you know, Larry Clapton and those, uh, John McVie and uh, Fleetwood Mac guys. Dude, insane, uh, dude. You know, yeah, and, no, uh, what's the cat's name? Uh, was it Peter Green? Yeah, Peter Green was in there as well. So that was a pretty he- heady company to have been in, you know. <sighs> it ended up being two records. We did so many tracks that one of them was all of us and another one they split up with one that had uh, that guy from the Rolling Stones Mick Taylor on, sure you know? sure so we played the same dime but we're on the same record anyway you but, no, uh, I guess my, like if you guys were traveling like did you were you hip to I mean did you go see Mayall had you seen him live before you walked into that studio that day no never I mean well familiar with him yeah uh, no, I hadn't seen him live, um, but it was just, you know, I was well aware of his work at the time, uh, and so it was, uh, you know. Well, some, I mean, all I'm saying is, like, it must have been interesting, because some of his tunes lend themselves to stretching out. I mean, you Oh, leave... that was the whole thing. Yeah. The, the whole thing was just, uh, everybody was... Yeah, it was like a jam band. <laughs> see, that's the Stick Davis. I that I want to see Stick Davis in a jam band. That's what I want to see. It 
Well, I mean, that's not so tough. You know, I know, you know, at least I know how to think on my feet. Uh, well, that's what it's about, man. I mean, don't repeat any ideas. Um, and ultimately, um, once you leave the head of the tune, just go out. You know, I mean, so may all that's during those live gigs. Were there tunes that were challenging for you? Because or, or was it all just kind of? Uh, not structure wise, you know, there it, it wasn't. You know, they were relatively uh, blues based yeah I do yeah you know now uh, at least on this particular band you know he had some of his band one of them he didn't even have a drummer you know and that was a sort of a jazz influence kind of thing but at least what he wanted from these Memphis guys was he just kind of wanted sort of grits and gravy feel uh, I think on that Uh, but uh, we went overseas man we were just going overseas for about two or three weeks and they kept adding dates on, man. We ended up over there about six weeks, and it was like pandemonium, man. What was that? Well, that's insane, dude. That you, that I mean, you didn't even bring enough clothes for that. I was about thirty years old at the time, I, even though I was married and had a little kid, you know. And, yeah. uh But that was still, you know, that's pretty exciting stuff back in those days, you know. Probably still is, you know. Well, I mean, it, and, it, and it's still. Those things still, those tours still go on. It's it's just it's interesting again. May all coming from uh, England. I, that that interview with him was fascinating because he was came up uh, like steeped in traditional jazz, but also um, yeah. I just I, th- for him, he had you know Red Holloway and he had Freddie Robinson. He's one of the original. He's one of the guys that even sort of created whatever blues scene there was in England that later on all those greats came out. That's of. right. I mean, he's old. I, mean, I think he was in the Korean War or something, man. Dude, that is. I'm who else was in that? Who else was in that band? Who was in that band with you? Uh, it was uh, uh, Bobby Manuel. Uh, I think he was like. He was. Uh, uh, he, uh, I think he owned that studio, Daily Planet. But they, I, you know, they did all kinds of sessions and jingles. I think he might have. Uh, he may have been that quacking guitar on Shaft. I'm not sure. Wow. And uh, and let me see. Uh, quacking guitar. I love that, dude. Or whatever you want. To yeah. No. No. The wah wah. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, let me see. A, a fella, Don McMahon. Wow. Uh, but it was it was the, it was just like it was like a pretty stripped down group. Was there a horn section or no? Yeah, there was just four of us, I think. Wow, we had two guitar players and bass and drums, and then the uh, the producer was a fella named Don Nix. Dude, I can't believe you just dude. My, do you know who Larry Raspberry is? Yeah, of course, sure. So Larry, Larry just called. He tried to. He called Don, and Don wasn't into doing it. Dude. I'm a, he wasn't in doing an interview. He's been doing an interview with you? I can't believe that. Dude, he, no, you know what he said? He said, I didn't talk to him, but he told Larry, he's like, he's like the last couple have been very disappointing. I'm like, come on, man. You don't even, you're talking to Jake Feinberg. He's famous, is he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Dude, so Don Nix was, well, I'm sorry, he was, he was, what was he doing in that in that band? Well, he didn't do anything in the band. He produced the record. Oh, my God. Well, I mean, that's what he did. Right? Dude, I can't freaking believe that. That is so classic. Oh, but, but I got to tell you, that whole tour was pandemonium, but part of it had to do with Dix, you know. He added to the color, that's for sure. Oh, my God, dude. I, I mean, dude, the, if the walls could talk. 
say more. I did. Yeah, he's a colorful guy, and he's an interesting interview. He's probably just fooling with you, making bait you or something, man. Because if he's, he'll tell you a story. Now, you know, you might want to have your whatever department that is to check on due diligence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. Right. Uh, the yeah, the FCC. The uh, he's a colorful fellow, man. That's one thing about Nick. He is. I've talked to him in years, but yeah, he's a he's a handful, man. <laughs> Stick. Well, that was a long time ago. No, but still, I mean, that's that's a greasy, that's a greasy band, you know. That's a good, ba- it's a good band. Well, and, and you know, we we were just all guys that kind of played how we played around there. We hadn't been a band or anything. We were a studio band. No, I dig. I, I'm wondering, have you have you? I mean, considering that it was a pretty massive tour. Have you ever stumbled across any live tapes of those shows? No, and I have looked around too. I don't think there's. Oh, uh, I had some, but I don't. I'm gonna go. Any. I'm gonna go dig around a little bit. I I might be able to hook you. You have it was okay, in eight, mostly Italy and about eighty uh, one. Yeah, about June, July. All right, all right. I'll go look around for it. Do a couple of months in there. <laughs> Stick okay. is there? Stick, do you? <laughs> are there? In Tampa today, you are an elder. Are there other elders that, you know, and of any genre that you, that are down in that St. Petersburg, Tampa area that you, that you can, that you stay in touch with at all? Uh, let me see. I'm not an elder from here. This is just where I wound up. I dig. I know I did, but you're, but you know, you're, you are definitely, uh, yeah. People, I gotta tell you, that's, you have to be careful with that, man. People don't like you for that. What do you mean? Well, okay. I came here like eight years ago. This is like a big hometown here. Uh, yeah, I, I know. You're Okay, you don't have to go any farther. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not part of the family. I get it. Well, no, I'm not. I didn't grow up here. I ain't even really kind. In fact, I just passed my 1,200th gig mark. Well, I mean, you're doing, they're not starving to death, you know. Uh, well, I don't make very much, but what yeah. it does, it keeps me moving, keeps my brain moving, gets me out of the house. Keeps the pulse going. Come on, dude. It's, yeah, it's a, essential. This is, not, this is just about gigs. There's not, there, you know, there's, oh, maybe, a, I mean, people make it CDs and stuff, but mostly it's just about the gigs and stuff around here. This is not, uh, <clears throat> now, now, one thing that there is here that I've kind of started doing some records for is trop rock which is kind of a a sweet little genre it's uh generally artists are a little bit older they're people that have had a career right yeah they all write sing songs about uh life on the beach and make it easy and <laughs> yeah jimmy buffett kind of stuff you know yeah yeah those golf horses and <laughs> wait know, so you're talking about yeah. There's an outlet for that. There's charts and festivals, and I mean, it's it's all Jimmy Buffett's fault. You blame him, dude. I'm blaming him, dude. Wait, hold on. You're talking about non-professional musicians who have a lot of dough and want to play, and so then they're yeah, pretty well sizes it up. Yeah. Well, that's okay. that is. Yeah. Well, okay. that. <laughs> right to the chase. Absolutely. <laughs> and what it is, I got there's a man wiped out here that are friends of mine from Nashville. Only I didn't know they were down here for a while. Right. I hooked back up, and they got a studio, a little label, and so I, they got about eight or ten artists on their label. And it's kind of, you know, the 
artist is self-funding this invoice. Absolutely. Sugar Daddy, yep, yep. You know, but they got, uh, you know, charts for that and everything. So we go, you know, we all speak the same language, not the artists, but, uh, but you know, these folks that run this studio. So, I mean, you know, we all do the number system and, you know, we wow. write them real fast, you know. And so <clears throat> that's kind of a cool thing because... God, there's everybody, all everybody plays is blues around here, and uh, I've had enough. Wow, dude, I love the way you're talking. So what, tell me. No, it's just white boys lost in the blues. I've been playing blues for 40 years. I know, dude, are you doing it? I mean, I was just listening. I wanted you to talk about um, your concept of, especially with you and Butch, I was just listening to this Late 70s, I was watching you guys from the late 70s, uh, some TV program. Uh, yeah, that's right. I didn't even know they were around in that in 78, but the uh, Who Will the Next Fool Be? And um, I just wanted you guys, where did... Charlie Rich wrote that. Charlie Rich wrote that. Song. That's absolutely right. I love your version, though. And, uh, and I just wanted you to talk about you and Butch, not about, okay, yeah, you were young and just, you know you know, a lot of language on the, on the, the bass and the drums, but ultimately where did you guys come in terms of where did you feel the beat was, were you in front of the beat on top of it or, or behind it? Butch pretty laid back on there, man. Now, You're darn right, dude. And not, you know, he well, neither of us really, we, had, we didn't understand the consistency of studio playing yet. Mm. So, uh, but even then, even back in high school, I knew I needed to be landed on that kick drum, you know? <laughs> you, <laughs> you, know? you didn't know much, but you knew yeah. that. Yeah, I did. You know, I'm leaving the plane across the beat for the guitar players, you know? But, uh. Uh, and Butch was like that, too. Now, we met, you know, completely, you know, I'm from Indiana, and he was from Tennessee, but uh, he and I had an instant sort of, just lock or kinship or something, you know, and it was just one of those things that we hit it right off. Uh, and um, so we both, even though we were young and we naive and everything, that's one thing together. We had a pretty nice little tightness that somebody could lay down, you know, uh, their chord structures and their lyric. And they knew that they weren't, when they came back in for verse number two, that they were going to be on the money. For I did. I you 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 created that padding. You know, it was beautiful. Yeah, yeah. that's our job, man. You I, know, the stars are up in front. That's why we're in the back, man. You well, know? but yeah, you guys. But I mean, you guys got to. I mean, you guys can really swing the. I mean, everybody knows the drummer is basically the leader of the band. So yeah. he he can direct the tempo. He can shut people down. And the point is that uh, you guys make the music feel good. You know, and that's the point. It's not, you know. I always referred to like this, especially me and Butch, man, because Butch, he always sat low on, behind his kit. And he looked like he was riding his kit. You know? <laughs> and, uh, so I always described us as the uh, mighty engines behind the ace. Oh, man, dude. <laughs> I mean, you know, at the end of the day, Stick, I, I, uh, I, I wanted you to just, before we wrap up set two here, I just, I wanted you, you know, it's such an interesting time on so many levels and, you know, in, in every area of the world, but I just, you know, when I listen to your music, the, the aces, I mean, it's like very powerful 
emotive music. And I just today I want I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about your concept of love and you know what how you aside from music, you know, how you bring love to your world. At this point in life, uh, that sort of comes through uh, uh, people in my life. You know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm an older gentleman now, so my joys come from, of course, still getting to play music. But in addition to that, you know, I'm a grandfather. I have four grandchildren, uh. and I get to. Uh, uh, they live very close. You know, I get to see them uh, just about every day. One of them, or sometimes all of them, if I want. Uh, and they, how does that make talk about your grandkids? I mean, cause that to me, yeah. that, that it's not about that to me is unconditional love, you know, it is. And I want to, uh, now I've the three of them already, you know, come to see me play and they know who their grandpa is. The youngest one, my little grandson, he's not quite old enough to know that yet, but I want to hang on there long enough that they all kind of know who their grandpa is. And, you know, like I've had them all over to my crib here and had them pick out something they might want after I'm gone, you know, a few little trinkets like and my uh, oldest granddaughter wants my upright bass. And dude, I want her swinging a big band with that upright, dude. <laughs> well, it's an old upright bass. I know, dude. Billy told me, man. Yeah, I still have What is that, like a 66 or something? No, no, this one is about a 1935 or something. Oh, my God, dude. That's like that's like a Milt Hinton bass or something, dude. Yeah, so it's, my mom got it for me for my 16th birthday. She bought it in a pawn shop. She really, because I played upright when I was a kid. She liked that because <clears throat> something we did together. We'd go to the orchestra and stuff, you know. Oh, totally. I was seeing the, the ensembles, but then when I started playing electric bass, you know, I don't want to be bothered with it. No, totally, man. That's why everybody got into it, you know. But yeah. start playing music, you know. People pay attention. You you uh, feel though, um, you feel at peace in your life. Absolutely, yes, I do. You know, I think that that I I hope that may I'm really happy to hear that, man. Because I, Billy, the same way. It's like you guys, the lineage of your family will continue. Your music will live on long after you've gone. And, you know, there are a lot of cats that had the similar careers that you did and, you know, the phone stopped ringing or they just became less in demand and they're pretty resentful and they're not very happy. And I'm just really happy. Well, yeah. Stay down, man. You can't lay down. You can't lay down. I mean, I guess if you're a big star or something, but man, I was just a working guy. Guy did, man. Lay down. Man, I, you know, I still kept, I still kept trying to be a better musician because I didn't learn how to play till after the Aces, really. I love that. How old were How old were you at that? Forty. When back when the Aces? No, after old? after the Aces. Uh, let me see. Or maybe thirty-one, or I don't 31, even. Thirty-one, yeah, I was thirty-one back then, and then we got back together again when I was about uh, in 96. So I guess I was 46 then, you know. I just turned 45. So when you say, when you say, <laughs> when you say, uh, I just, uh, like, I think it's really important because I, I actually, I've heard this a couple times, but, I, you know, life starts at 40 in some ways. You know, you don't really know anything until then. You don't have enough life experience. And I just, when you, for younger cats who are desperately trying to, get in the game 
and yet they don't even have any <clears throat> foundation, yet they want to get in the game because they feel the pressure of the, the speed of our society now and the one-and-done nature of everything. And what would why is it important to... Um, for longevity to to keep, you know, the fact that you would say, people would say, what are you talking about? How, what do you mean you learned how to play after the Aces the first time around? What does that mean? And why is it important for longevity as a musician? Um, for me, it was, uh, I knew how to play Aces songs, okay, uh -huh. and that particular style, but hey, I wanted to be a plug-in kind of guy. Hey, you need a bass player, you know, within these certain genres. Hey, I'm a guy you can call and, you know, I take right off. So uh, I, I more like needed the little mechanics of the music and not be some guy who just knew a whole bunch of songs. I dig, man. How the music worked. And now I'm starting to learn that. That's something I've been trying to do for over 30 years, you know. Um, well, we got to get, get you a stone bebop gig, man. <laughs> I mean that's you know that's the other part of it, right, Stick? Because you never really learn everything that there is. To, you never learn oh, it all. Anybody says, "No, you can't teach me nothing, man. I know everything." Yeah, okay, okay. And some some twenty year old kid's gonna come on and play your ass in the ground. You're all that. Get ready, man, because nobody is. Um, this uh, this town I live in here—it's a lovely town, St. Petersburg. Yeah. Uh, I play up north, up that way, up the coast. When, like Hillsboro or something? And, I'm sorry? Like in Hillsboro? Is that what it's called? Or what, 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 what well, town? That's Hillsboro County. That's Tampa. But I mean, just uh, uh, up the north of the coast, you know, like, oh, I don't know. There's Pasco County, has a like that. And then there's south, Sarasota, right. Naples. And I go both ways. I go down south, too. And it's lovely going to the gigs, go with these beautiful bridges and these bodies of water and the sun. And, you know, it's just it's wonderful doing the, the gigs and stuff around here. Um, and there, man, there are a lot of players um, like the band last night. Uh, it's a different man, his wife that have a uh, they have two bands. They got like a 60s band. And then the 90s pop country band. And we did the 90s pop country band at a um, <clears throat> country club last night. But the music is real fun, you know, revisit like songs that were popular when I lived in Nashville and, you know, that kind of stuff. And, hey, I enjoy doing that or playing like uh, California Dreamin' or The Age of Aquarius. Oh, my God. It. Are you kidding me, dude? Well, that's well written you know and the fact that i can figure out how to play them and you know i, I do write national number system you know i'm an old numbers guy sure well and, i still uh, i still feel like you're fully capable of pulling off a serious my favorite things or something you know oh I, i'm sure i could yeah you know or all blues i guess <clears throat> if there's one band i you know do you play in any outfits i don't care if it's one gig a year where you guys are playing original music, or are you basically playing all tunes that are part of the... Um, well, I was. I played in one band for about eight years till just very recently. Mm -hmm. Back, uh, yeah, just right before I talked to you, I'm not in it anymore. Wow. Uh, the guy, a gentleman that... Uh, 
how can I put it? It's okay. The point is, can you talk about that? That that to me is what I get off on the most. Is well, he, he's a, okay. He's a, a wealthy guy, and uh, uh, you know, he's uh, he writes songs, except he doesn't really. He right. Takes existing melodies and puts his own words to them and things like that, and they dance fine, you know. Right. Uh, and he's a guy like a guy that sort of. He can't jam. He plays harmonica, and uh, you know he can't really jam. Yeah, you know, but he likes his band and all that. And, uh, but he, so that's about the only. Now wait a minute, that's not right either. I also <laughs> the whole time I've been playing with a woman named Wendy Rich, and uh, she's kind of got some Nashville connections or whatever. So uh, she does original music. Um, and sometimes somebody will have one or two tunes, but there's not many people that have a group of their all original tunes other than uh, the guy and his wife that have the studio. I'm just telling you, uh, this is my one wish for you, and you, we need to uh, connect again really soon, but I really hope that on some of those sun-washed days that you can connect with some kind of fierce fusion blues rock band that's just <laughs> playing instrumental over-the-top music because... That's what I need. Say again. Thank you. Kind thoughts and words. Hey, I feel like I'm real lucky that people call me to still play. You know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I mean, dude, you, 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 it's always been, yeah, and it will always happen, man. And I also think music is a healing force, and and it will, and so as long as you can, you have the gumption to do it, it's going to keep you your soul alive, and it's going to keep you on this planet. So. With me, it's it's certainly keeping me waking up in the morning and putting one foot in front of the other. As I said, my my life is real simple, man. It's uh, friends and family, uh, my dog, and playing music, and it, that's what it is. Those three things. It's real simple, and I'm in pretty good health. Um, yeah, you know, no, I'm stick, stick. I, I I I can. I hope I'm part. Of, I consider you part of the family, man. I really love hanging with you. I can't wait to come down there. And, uh, you know, I don't care if it's a country club gig. I definitely want to come see you play, man. And I, uh, yeah, it, it, it come, you know, all kinds of different things happen, you know, uh, man, if you're getting near the neighborhood, please let me know, man. And thank you for thinking of me. And Hey, if you don't have anybody else to call sometime, you can always call stick. I'll be happy to stick. Talk to I'll you, be, bro. I'm calling you back. We'll do it. I'm going to get this entire the full interview up, but we'll do it again, man. And, uh, much love to you, baby. One foot in front of the other. All right. Well, thank you so much. Hey, until the next time, all right? All right, sir. Be cool. Take care, my brother. Later, dude. Bye. Bye.